Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what do experts think about the singularity? So today we are joined by Nikola Danilov, who is the creator of the Singularity weblog and also the host of the popular Singularity one-on-one podcast. This is one of the longest running and most popular podcasts in this niche of futurism or transhumanism or singularitarianism, so many terms you could use. And so welcome to the show, Nicola. Thanks for having me, guys. It's very nice to talk to you today. Well, you've really done a, a, a fantastic job with both the site and the podcast because you've talked to pretty much every expert in this field that I can think of with, with very few exceptions. I want to talk about the name that you've chosen for your blog and your podcast using the word singularity for, for both of those things and making that part of your identity. And of course, this is a term with, with an interesting history and a term that's sometimes complicated to, to unpack the meanings of. You yourself once wrote a blog post in which you listed actually 17 definitions of the term. So yeah. uh, I wouldn't want you to go through all 17 now, of course, but <laughs> uh, what it, does the term mean to you and, and has that meaning changed since you've been doing this? Well... There's many ways to approach the meaning of the term, but perhaps the the biggest question that I'm trying to kind of point our direction towards is is the meaning actually of another term, which is what is it to be human? And so the question when you combine those two terms is how does technology change the meaning or even the question of what is it to be human? Because first we create our tools and then the tools create us. Uh, We are that intelligent creature which creates tools and and builds progress. And in time, those tools change who we are. Uh, Not not only uh, intellectually, but even physically. And so for me, the singularity is the moment in which humanity will basically have a break point with its understanding of what it is uh, and what the future holds for us and who we are both collectively and personally. The main idea there being that that sort of break point will likely arise at the moment when machines become equal and very quickly probably smarter than we are. So, in other words, sometimes I like to, to pose the question as, what happens to you when your toothbrush is smarter than you? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, that's a different world, I think, is, <laughs> is the message there. Well, so I wanted to um, follow up with that, uh, because that's really interesting to me, what you're talking about, about the tools. You know, we create our tools, and the tools create us. Um, I have subscribed to that worldview. I call that technological determinism. That's usually the, the phrase I'd use to describe that. The, the idea that our technological place, uh, the, the capabilities that our technology has, determine a lot, you know, about our world, particularly um, about ourselves. Well, to be honest with you, I will kind of challenge you on that term, determinism. Okay. So technology is definitely a huge factor in the process. I just don't think it is determined. I think it is kind of random. So in other words, it's a very dynamic system. It's like a circle of of influence between us and technology, but I don't think it's predetermined in any way. I think it's got a lot of factors included in it and many of which are dynamic. In other words, 
after, you know, having a futurist blog for five years, I am not convinced that, you know, we can predict the future. I mean, because if it's, if, if everything is determined, then it's easy cause and effect and, and we can predict it. But I think we can at best hope to see the major trends and then uh, steer towards those kind of potentialities which we find to be the most attractive and try to stay away from the dangers, uh, which doesn't mean we'll be successful either way, but uh, at least we have a much better chance of you know, avoiding the dangers and, and getting to a good outcome if we are more deliberate about it. So you, you mentioned the difficulty of predicting the future and how that's the concept that you've hit upon after doing this blog and this podcast for so long. So I have to assume that's part of the result of speaking with all these experts on all these issues. As you've gone uh, to interview them and ask many of them about this issue of singularity and particularly artificial intelligence, have you discovered any kind of consensus at all or is it all over the map? Well, that, that's precisely one of the revelations that after 170 interviews, I think it's largely all over the map. And that's actually, not, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? On the one hand, that also goes to show that the future is open. Anything is possible, you know? It's not written in stone, as, as one of my interviewees, Ramez Naam, once pointed. And, and also, we are all human. And, and I actually try to set people up during my interviews in such a way as they reveal their human flaws and, and features. Uh, no matter how smart they, they may be, I believe any one of us has their, you know, uh, little quirks or, or flaws or things they can work on. And that's what makes us human, uh, at least for now. And that's also what makes us flawed in terms of our ability to foresee the future or to identify what are the most important things even in the present. And after 170 interviews, the opinion of the experts, quote unquote, in, in those fields is more or less all over the map. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the major disagreements that are yeah. in the community. It's true that they're all over the map, but there's got to be some patterns that we can uh, sure. zoom in on uh, big debates that people fall generally on one side or the other. Yeah. So, of course, there are a few camps. And of course, if we are talking about the technological singularity, then the first major division comes with respect to will it happen or will it not happen? <laughs> right. Yes, course, that's right? obviously foundational. So let's talk about that. Right. So, right. so there's those experts. So, for example, most recently I interviewed uh, Miguel Nicolelis and Ronald Sicurel. Uh, Ronald Sicurel is a Swiss mathematician who uh, worked for about four years on the Blue Brain project uh, with Dr. Henry Macram before it eventually became the recently collapsed uh, Human Brain project, uh, which was funded uh, or supposed to be funded to the extent of a billion dollars by the European Union. But that whole project is now very uncertain and the leader has been uh, removed. Uh, and Dr. Miguel Nicolelis was the person who basically creates brain-computer interfaces, originally with monkeys, then with people. There was this Brazilian who kicked off the, the ball during the World Cup, uh, the World Soccer Cup in Brazil, 
who was paraplegic and yet wearing an exoskeleton and a brain-computer interface, he was able to kick off the ball. He's also the person who managed to create the first brain-to-brain direct communication between two rats over the internet. Uh, I think one of the rats eventually was in Brazil and another one was in the United States. And and, uh, so they're both kind of experts in their fields. And yet they both thought that the singularity is not near and that the computer brain is not simulatable. And there's a huge number of, of experts in the field. Uh, Wait a minute, can I stop you for, for a second? Sure. Sorry, Nicola. So uh, I just want to make sure that I understood this correctly. They both thought that uh, the human brain is totally unsimulatable by any hardware yes. at any time? Yes. Wow, that's surprising. Well, they thought... You know, most computers nowadays, they're designed along what's called, they're Turing machines. Mm -hmm. Basically, the architecture was written in the 1930s in this seminal paper by Alan Turing. Uh, And and they're called Turing machines. And they're saying that the Turing machine can compute any problem that's computable, but the brains are non-computable. And then they evoke a number of uh, of evidences to support their claims, such as uh, Goodell's incompleteness theorem, uh, neurophysiological uh, issues uh, and so on and they are very strongly into the camp that that's a pipe dream as Dr. Miguel Nicoleris put it and yet you have people such as uh, Ray Kurzweil who of course is most known for being the proponent of the singularity out there uh, and, and each of those camps have very notable faces and experts. So, for example, in the skeptics, you have people such as uh, Michio Kaku, who most of uh, our v- uh, listeners today are probably familiar with from his uh, TV appearances on a number of uh, the Science Channel, uh, National Geographic, Discovery, and so on. Sure. So, you have equally famous people expressing <laughs> incompatible opinions. Well, I think too it's it's interesting to try to separate out, you know, somebody who's saying that this singularity, you know, however you achieve it, whether it's through human level AI or actually emulating the brain, may be impossible and saying simply that it's very very far away. Um isn't there a distinction to be made there? Yes, so so yeah, that's a great point. So so let's be clear. So there are skeptics and and there are optimists. Now, to be fair, the vast majority of computer scientists, for example, tends to be clustered that artificial intelligence will eventually be created. The singularity eventually will happen, but they differ as to how close we are to that point. And, you know, some people would say 10 or 20 years, Ray Kurzweil says 2045, some people say within this century, and some people say hundreds of years from now. So so you have this clustering of, of experts within a discipline, which is very interesting. So as I said, computer scientists tend to be more optimistic that eventually it will happen. They just differ on the timeline. But then you have people from other disciplines, traditionally neuroscientists, psychologists, cognitive scientists and linguists such as Noam Chomsky, uh, who are absolute skeptics that it can be accomplished at all, ever, and just don't see it as a possibility. Miguel Nicolilis and and so on, right? And then within the camp of the optimists uh, that it will happen, then there's the pessimists that 
say that that's going to be a very bad event. And there's the optimists like Ray Kurzweil who say it's going to be a very good event. So again, to be clear, from the people who believe that the singularity is likely to happen, some think that that will be the end of the world. And most recently, people such as Dr. Stephen Hawking. Um, I saw Bill Gates talking about this uh, the other day. Yes, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Max Tegmark, Nick Bostrom, a number of people have come out with the warning that if we are not careful, this may be the, indeed, as James Barrett said, our final invention, and it may be the end of humanity afterwards. Of course, the optimists uh, might also say it'll be our final invention, <laughs> right? And then and the computer will, will invent the everything for us. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's right. right. That's very interesting because, of course, uh, a good singularity seems so good that it's uh, it seems worth a lot of effort to try to make it happen, uh, and a bad singularity seems so bad that it seems worth a lot of effort to try to keep it from happening. So uh, this, it's interesting that the things that people worry about split so so strongly in that way. Yeah, so so I did say that there is a, a wide diversity of opinion, and yet you're right to, to push me that there are some clusterings of opinions uh, here and there. Well, and I, I assume because of your own personal interest in this topic that you must at least find the people predicting that this thing is going to be coming relatively soon, at least credible, at least deserving of enough attention and consideration to merit doing all these interviews in the first place, right? I mean, because if we're talking about something that is literally the survival or extinction of the human race, you know, even if there is a some chance that it it's not even a real issue, it seems like it's worth exploring uh, because the stakes are so high. Yes, but let me qualify that a little bit. So this is how I started, of course, with that presumption. But I think if I'm to look backwards, I think I ha- I'm still an opti- uh, kind of not an optimist is not the right word, but I still think that the singularity has a strong potential uh, of happening. But uh, today I have gotten to the point where I think uh, I, I'm less convinced of its, you know, probability than let's say five years ago when I started. It's, it's probability or it's imminence? Are we talking about like it happening both. at all or soon? Oh, okay, both. both. So uh, I think it, it is both possible, uh, but, but I think it is less probable than I originally thought. And I think it is less imminent also than I originally thought. That's kind of my own personal uh, journey, if you will. I'm interested in that. What do you? What has changed your mind? Is it just the sheer volume of disagreement, or is there something else to well, it? Well, the the volume of disagreement is definitely a factor I cannot ignore. I mean, those are some of the smartest and most interesting people, and and you know, I cannot. I I may disagree with all of them on on some things, but I cannot disagree with everyone on everything. Uh, so, in other words, my own personal intelligence and background and intellectual capabilities allow me to embrace or reject certain things that I have encountered on my show or during my studies uh, in part of my preparation for those interviews. And as a result of that ongoing process of learning, you know, I've gotten to the point that I think it's a lot more complicated than I originally thought it is. The trends are always less clear than than we make them to be. And the random, unpredictable, non-determined events like black swan kind of events are always a very strong possibility that can 
totally come out of the blue and change our future into a completely unexpected direction. So I'm putting a lot more uh, kind of merit or, or potentiality into those than I was originally putting. As I said, that's kind of a, a change in degree rather than in kind, right? Sure, so I'm, sure. I'm still, I still believe that there's a very high potentiality for the singularity to happen. I just think it's, a, it's considerably less than I originally anticipated. I, I think it would be interesting now to try to, to delineate some of the different ways we could get to this singularity. If we're defining this as a breakpoint, and you said you mm-hmm. know, that breakpoint is most likely associated with machine intelligence equaling or exceeding that of, that of human beings. Uh, yes. Because people like Werner Vinge have talked about multiple paths that could get us there, right? So to say yeah. that one path, like, uh, say, emulating the human brain, you know, the human brain might be unsimulatable, Okay, that would cut off one one possible way of getting exactly. there. But yeah. does it cut off all paths? And and what are some of those paths? Exactly. So Werner Vinge points that there is a variety of ways to get to the singularity. And for example, one way would be the development of computers uh, such as Watson to the point where they become self-aware or superhumanly intelligent, not only for jeopardy and diagnosing uh, medical diseases, but for anything else that a human being can do, right? And that's the path through design. You know, we go there, we put a a Manhattan kind of a project, we invest billions of dollars, we bring in the best and the brightest of humanity, and we create this super smart machine. That's one way. Another way is through large computer networks, uh, for example, such as the internet, And that argument has been pushed forward by people such as, for example, uh, George Dyson, who says that in some ways the Internet is probably intelligent already. And there is definitely the possibility of of emerging intelligence on the Internet somewhere just due to its complexity. Uh, So a a third way of, of, of reaching the singularity would be also evolutionary algorithms, which is basically playing evolution the way it happened with us, the way our own intelligence emerged, but on a much faster scale through the creating the environment in which you write certain algorithms, which then they start evolving and eventually may potentially get to the point where they've got self-sufficient intelligence and, and perhaps maybe even consciousness. Another potential way would be through what is called simply by enhancing our own human uh, biological intelligence. And that could happen in a variety of ways through, say, chips uh, embedded into the brain, through uh, human interfaces, uh, human computer interfaces that plug into our intelligence and enhances. And we're already seeing that. I mean, all of our computer technology, all of our cell phones, Pretty much all the technology around uh, around us plugs into us and enhances us in one way or another. And the idea is that when you get to a certain scale of that, especially with respect to intelligence capabilities, so for example, instead of accessing Wikipedia on your cell phone, you can have it directly in your head. Uh, in, a, in a chip where you say you download the full internet and you have access to your to the whole knowledge of humanity inside you know of of your brain or connected in your head right directly to your brain and uh 
that's uh, one one way of, of also doing it. Uh, and another way is perhaps by creating an artificial intelligence which basically mimics the human brain by a brain simulation, which will be considered, you know, uh, as long as it works well and it performs like a human brain will do, and it has cognition and, and self-awareness and consciousness and all those things, then it will be intelligent and so on. And so when Miguel Nicolelis and Ronald C. Curiel say, well, the, the human brain is not simulable, I am kind of accepting that they make a good argument on that end and, and therefore diminish the probability of it happening for me personally. I am not convinced that th that argument is sufficient to uh, negate the potentiality of the singularity in general. Right. It seems to bolster the opinions of like um, uh, Ben Gertzel and others that AGI, you know, a, a designed approach, as you were calling it, uh, will beat the simulative uh, approach in terms of what will happen first, right? Because that's a big... Uh, debate within the community as well as among those who think it is possible to uh, create machine intelligence one way or another uh, there's considerable debate about which method uh, of those yeah. who discussed will will be plausible or possible first and I think yeah that's interesting because the uh, the hardware required to do these different things uh, may be may be vastly different um, we don't really absolutely know yeah. yeah and and uh, you know, I I don't I wouldn't go as far as to say that Ben Gertzel's approach will be the 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 one the the, the most likely one to win. Uh, all I'm willing to grant at this moment is that the 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 brain simulation approach right now seems to be the one that's the most behind and the least promising in light of my recent interview with Dr. Miguel Nicolelis uh, and and the fact that you know the whole human brain project uh, seems to be in disarray right now. You know so. Definitely a huge setback, and, and I don't know if they're right or not, but what I can say is that they're making a very powerful argument why it wouldn't be simulatable. And so, you know, when I talk to people about things like that, inevitably I learn stuff, uh, hopefully, and, and, and my opinion evolves. But that doesn't mean that they have managed to basically preclude all the possibilities. They just basically diminished highly the possibility of one option happening. But as we saw, there's a number of other pathways to the singularity. Right. And generally, the emulation route is considered one of the more hardware-intensive routes, as it is, right? Because you have to simulate this complex biological structure down to a low level, just assuming that that even worked. That would be computationally intensive. I know, like... Uh, Robin Hansen, who's a proponent of that view, uh, puts his date for the singularity much later, uh, hundreds of years later, I think, than than other thinkers, because he basically is saying, well, he doesn't think that you know any of those design approaches are ever going to work, and this is how long he thinks it'll take to get to emulation hardware, you know, that really works. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I tend to disagree with a lot of things that Robin says, but I have to agree on that one. I think that we are really you know, at the very early baby steps towards learning the brain and, and let alone simulating it. We, we still have so many unknowns in the brain. We still don't know how most things work there, let alone trying to simulate them and, and put it all together. So I agree with him on that one. Well, so let's talk about being at, at the stage where we're still making baby steps, because you mentioned earlier Ray Kurzweil, and he's obviously a giant in this field of and somebody who's 
been instrumental in popularizing this term singularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think his biggest argument, you know, of course, is not necessarily anything to do with the singularity specifically. It's more this concept of accelerating returns and the fact that, okay, yes, we're making baby steps now, but surprisingly soon we'll be making giant steps because mm-hmm. of the way the technology advances. I mean, that's in a way a, a separate idea. After speaking with so many experts, how credible do you find that view? I'm about half and half on that, right? Because, you know, yes, we have the law of accelerating returns. And yes, it's very, very, very powerful. But as another one of my interviewees once put it, you can have a system in which one of the elements is moving exponentially. That does not mean that this kind of trend translates exponentially towards the the whole of the system, right? So, for example, let's say my computer this year is twice better than the computer I had last year. Fine. Does it make me write a book, a blog post, you know, an article or do an interview twice faster than I was able to do last year? I would say I'm not even sure if I have a single digit percentage increase, right? So yes, I have a better machine. And maybe when I render the final interview in 4K, it would cut my time in half. But that's only one of the elements of my process of producing content. And all the other elements do not exhibit the accelerating or exponential improvements that one that one element has exhibited. Right. So I think what you're talking about there is like bottlenecks. Is that right? Like the idea that it's not the speed of your computer that's slowing down your ability to, say, make a blog post, right? I mean, the bottleneck there is like your fingers or your brain or something like that, something that's outside of the computer. Yeah. So making the computer to call it perhaps better isn't going to solve that problem. And to some extent, we may have problems like that in AI research where the problem isn't the speed of the computer. Perhaps it's the perhaps it's the architectural design of the computer, like we were talking about. Like uh, if it's true that a Turing computer can't simulate a neuron properly, then it doesn't matter how fast a Turing computer you have. You need to have a different design of computer that can exactly. solve that problem. And yeah. waiting for that breakthrough, that design breakthrough, uh, is um, something that doesn't probably see the exponential return uh, that the uh, law predicts because it's not uh, an information technology. Uh, it's a, You're waiting for that black swan breakthrough. I can see that. But at the same time, I want to push back on that a little because I, I, I feel like what I find compelling about the idea of the law of accelerating returns is actually how broad it is and how mm-hmm. the logical underpinning for it is basically just that we use tools to create other tools. So the more tools we have, the better tools we can create. And that seems to be a pretty broadly applicable feedback loop that, that would apply you know, to any problem that can be solved with tools, which is, again, not every problem. Some problems need to be solved internally in your, in your brain, say. Um, but it does seem to me to be a bit broader than just faster computers. Absolutely. I mean, it permeates in many ways our society that they're surprising, perhaps. And it is surprising that it doesn't permeate all aspects of our society. So, so for example, y- you know, what did Peter Thiel said? He said, uh, we were promised flying cars, but we got 140 characters, right? So, so what he's pointing towards here is that 
things like Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, whatever else you, you may name, have come out of the blue, totally unexpected and change our lives in ways we couldn't see or predict. And yet things that we thought we could see and predict, like flying cars, jetpacks, etc., have not happened, right? So how, for example, have we not been able to translate the exponential growth uh, of technology in, for example, flying cars or not even flying, but just like so much better cars? And yes, today cars are better than they were, let's say, 50 years ago, but they're not like exponentially better. And our planes, more or less, uh, many skeptics point out, have largely remained stuck because the, the limit to growth there is the laws of physics and not you know, our uh, ability to calculate or simulate fluid dynamics or airflow design, etc. So until we have a, a sort of a knowledge breakthrough uh, and, and get to a new paradigm, to a new mode, whether with a new engine or a new radically new engine and radically new designs, if you look at it, the highlight of airplane design was the Concorde airplane. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about here, you know, for civilian use. Uh, and, and that was a design which is 40 or more years old, and it's not even flying anymore. So if you look at the airplanes for the last 40 or 50 years, there hasn't been, the, the, the improvement has been marginal. And the same can be said about, for example, the aerospace industry in general. I mean, we can't even go to the moon now, and we were able to do that 40 years ago. So you see, it's not everywhere that we're able to translate that incredibly impressive and, and counterintuitive and in, in some cases mind-blowing trend. It goes into certain places we don't expect and we don't hope for, and it doesn't go in other places where we hope for and, and we wish it would go. Right, well, and I, I think... Uh while I have issues, actually, with that Peter Thiel quote, I think one thing you can say about it is it sort of points out the fact that predictions of the past are often wrong. You know, specifically, when he's talking about flying cars, he's talking about predictions mostly from science fiction uh, being wrong, which I think is, you know, perhaps not that surprising. With that quote in particular, we've actually talked about before on this podcast because it kind of pits communication, 140 characters, versus transportation, flying cars. Right, uh, and the thing that the thing about those things is that they they substitute for each other. Well, we also think that communication is perhaps the first step that you would logically go for. Like, were we to go back in time and to think about things differently, we would say, well, first we're going to create a global communications network here on this planet and get everybody talking to each other, and mm -hmm. then we'll go beyond the planet. It seems like that would be the logical order to proceed in, and the fact that our our old science fiction. Uh, managed to get those things backwards and think that we would start, you know, crazy space colonies before we had the internet is just because our old science fiction was was wrong. Now, I guess the but I'm not convinced it's only the old science fiction, right? I mean, it was a scientific fact that we were going to to the moon 40 years ago, and it's a it's a it's a fact of reality that we can't do it now. Well, what you mean by can't is we're not doing it now, because of course the same techniques that worked 40 years ago to go to the moon would work now. What it would take is a government but to put the money have in. Lost, we have lost some of that knowledge, some of that capability. Lots of the, the, the math, lots of the science was lost, by the way, because and for a number of reasons. One of them, for example, was that it was stored on a medium uh, which is now obsolete. 
Okay, so, oh, and that would be a, a hindrance to somebody launching a new moon project today. But you have to agree, with the appropriate amount of money, we could get to the moon today. There's no, the, it's not like the uh, Egyptian recipe for cement. We haven't lost it to history in a way that's irrecoverable. All that math could be redone, yes? I mean... We can I, rediscover it. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think maybe it's a little bit of a semantic difference here because I'm not sure if, if it's recoverable or rediscoverable. And I, I am an optimist on rediscoverable. Sure. Jeffrey, okay, definitely. I'll give you that. Rediscoverable sounds like a fair, a fair, a fair term for that. I'll give you right. that. Right, but but that's why I think it's not going to be today because we need some time to let. First of all, we need that focus, effort, uh, and investment in, into the field, and then we need to give it some time to give some fruit to to bear fruit. Right. So it's not. I don't think it's not like we can do it today. Maybe if we have a concerted effort like we did back in the day. In let's say a decade or five or ten years, we we should be able to do that. Right, I, think I I agree with that. But today, right now, we cannot do it. Okay, I I, I get that. I think that uh, yeah. I mean, one thing that's definitely happened that the Peter Thiel quote speaks to is that during the explosion of uh, petrol powered technology in the 20th century, we predicted that we would somehow get a lot more efficiency and power out of our transportation systems. And we've turned out not to really get that and instead to get a lot of efficiency and reach out of our communication systems and you know, like a lot of, tr of substitution uh, where people are using communication instead of uh, transportation. I mean, right now we're talking to you, you're in Canada, we're in Los Angeles, it's happening in real time. Um, you know, this is a perfect substitute for us getting on a plane and flying to Toronto to see you. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's mediated, it's technological, it's not every single, uh, you know, it's not every bit as good as if we were sitting uh, next to each other in a cafe, but it's good enough. So we're doing it. And it's, of course, yes. a lot cheaper. Um, so I think, you know, the, the Peter Thiel thing seems facile to me. Um, to, it, it also seems to imply that better transportation technology would be somehow better for the world or more powerful than, say, a global social network, uh, one that has toppled governments and, you know, uh, blown the whistle on government secrets of the most powerful uh, country in the world and things like that. I, 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 I think, think the question, not though, fair. is why not both? <laughs> why not both? Why one and not the other? Right? That's, I think, the bigger question. Okay. Yeah, that's because, interesting. Because we were thinking we were going to get the transportation and we were not thinking we were going to get Twitter per se, but we did get Twitter somehow and we didn't get the transportation somehow. So the question is why one and not the other? Right. And I think the, the why the, not both? The simple answer is that the, the communication technologies have advanced faster. And I think, of course, you can, you can answer that with another question of why has that been? Um, and I think it does, at the end of the day, have to do with, like, the laws the, of physics, the, the, the limits of physics, and the fact that you can only get so much energy density out of, you know, petroleum, but you can fit quite a few uh, transistors on a chip if you if you keep iterating. Right. So we need a paradigm shift, as I said, either a radically new. Uh, let's say airplane design or a radically new engine or a radically new source of energy that's totally going to be a huge breakthrough with the ca current paradigm that we are in right now to be able to get to that next level right so so if you look at 
going back to airplane progress in design, I mean, the first airplanes flew in the early 1900s. Who would have predicted that in 28 years we would fly from New York to Paris? Right? Or in maybe even it was 25 years because it was 1902 or so and 1928, if I remember. So 25, 26 years, we were able to fly to Paris. And, and then soon after, people were flying all over the world in the, in the 1940s. So there was an explosion, uh, you know, and, and of course, the previous mode of transportation before that was horses. And, and basically, the airplane and the car came of age at the same time which was radical, both, you know, above ground and on ground transportation. And then we kind of peaked off maybe at around, I don't know, 1960 or something. And then the, the gains afterwards have been marginal, right? And so, and we were seeing the, the previous 60 years and we were saying, look how far we've gone. And then by 69 or 60 or the 70s, we were going to the moon. So we were thinking, oh my God, look at this for 70 years. You know, we started with nothing. We flew like, I don't know, 20 meters. The first flight was tiny. And then we went to the moon in seven years. So in another, you know, 50 years, we'll be going out of the solar system. It was the logical thing to extrapolate. And yet we hit the limit somewhere around the 1970s for a number of reasons, which basically meant that we were stuck more or less in that same paradigm with that same reach in, in that same kind of realm of progress. Well, I think a, a big factor here that maybe we all can agree on is that there are major issues in terms of, of the culture driving sure. this and sure. what, what our research priorities are. So, of course, you know, the space race happens in a particular historical context of, you know, a, a dynamic between nations, a sort of Cold War situation, right. yeah. other factors that drove us to to do that when we did. And it may just have turned out that that wasn't in the long term something that the culture could get behind. Either it wasn't, you know, producing enough economic results for, for business interests to align behind it, or it wasn't adequately explained to the populace, you know, why it was worthwhile to do these things. So when we did hit a couple roadblocks, we kind of, you know, let it slide for a while. So I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of cultural factors here directing what, what we do and don't do. But I do think that the gains that we have gotten in the communications landscape are tremendously amazing. But you're right. We, why, why don't we have both is, is certainly a worthwhile question to ask as well. It was a reasonable extrapolation to imagine that we would, right? It's not unscientific or unreasonable based on the data. Let's say if, if we're having this conversation in the 1970s, based on the data of the previous 70 years, uh, with air flight and then space flight, we would have concluded that by 2015, we'll be going, you know, way further than Mars, right? It was, I think, the logical, scientific, and natural thing to expect. And yet we're not. So Yeah, I think that would have been based on uh, a couple of faulty assumptions, the biggest of which being that we were going to, you know, continue to improve in terms of energy density and energy efficiency and fuels, which, you know... Uh, by the 70s had pretty much, we'd gotten to the, the, the limits there, the chemical limits. But we didn't know that. And, and, and that same argument has been made about Moore's law right, and that's since exactly the get-go. And yet right. it hasn't been, you know, holding it back. Well, so, f right. We've heard a lot of doomsday predictions that we might get to the end of Moore's law. And right. um, 
uh, you know, Kurzweil, of course, has this idea that Moore's law transcends integrated circuits and it goes back as far as the abacus Absolutely. or something. But, yeah. uh, you know, he, he may or may not be right about that. And if it turns out uh, that, uh, you know, 2D chips are the end of the line and that we can't make 3D crystals or some other uh, uh, computing paradigm work, uh, then we may uh, we may have that problem in the future and all this stuff may stall but uh, there's been some pretty uh, promising results in the lab for both quantum computing and um, uh, 3D uh, chip design, right? So it seems like there are paradigms waiting in the wings to uh, take over and continue a Moore's Law-like trajectory in the, in the world of computer hardware uh, and won't take um, huge breakthroughs we don't know about. It should just take improvements to things that are already working in the lab to get, to get us there as far as I understand. Uh, so well, I'm a bit, I'm a bit more optimistic about that. And, you know, it's it's hard to judge because, again, I've, I've talked to a few experts who are in the sort of the microchip design industry, mm-hmm. whether for mobiles or for computers. And uh, many of them have told me uh, that Moore's Law has been dead for at least five, maybe seven or eight years now. So... <laughs> So, and again, others will deny it, but interestingly, most people that I've talked to from the industry uh, actually have said that we've been doing what they call tricks to get around the fact that Moore's Law has been dead for at least five or seven years. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you'll find those tricks actually going all the way back to the very first computers. I mean, they... Sure, tr- and tricks that's have again, been a, a big part yeah. of engineering, I think, all along. And uh, of course, we will need a paradigm shift s- soon, and everybody knows that. I, you know, you see, whenever you see any of these big companies talking about this stuff, they're always sort of pushing whatever they think the next uh, paradigm shift is going to be, uh, and we can't be certain of what that's going to be until it until it takes over. But uh, at least it looks like there are some promising um, options that are that are coming along. Well, clearly. We're in the, w- the waning days of the traditional 2D integrated circuit uh, continuing to, you know, I mean, even... Uh, maybe five years of that left. Maybe, yeah. I mean, we're at this point at what, like 14 nanometer features. So, I mean, we're going to literally just run up on an atomic limit um, people are saying pretty, that pretty soon. The, the people I talked to last were saying that we are probably most likely going to top off at five nanometers. That's what I've heard too, yeah. So at that point, like, I think you get bad electron bleed, and and you can't. Yeah, there's yeah. all kinds of issues, interference, interference problems. Yeah. The, I think Michio Kaku said the Heisenberg uncertainty principle starts kicking in, and there's all kinds of issues. Right, right. which doesn't mean we cannot come up with an alternative, right? So, but, right, but, right, but it needs means a new paradigm would be needed at that point, right. because you wouldn't be able to keep doing the same old 2D uh, uh, lithography mm-hmm. and having that work. So I know there's been some experiments into using 3d chips which is kind of a trick itself just stacking things and then you know hopefully there'll be like a whole new going back to my previous point which which we kind of got a little bit sidetracked into this whole direction and and the point was that you know you had those amazing computers which are you know say take an airplane from the 1960s and, and an airplane today we cannot even compare them in terms of the inside computer load that uh, a modern airplane is carrying, or even a car, which has probably 100 microchips at least nowadays. But in terms of the pure performance of the car or the airplane, the benefits have been more marginal. And so 
I was saying that as an example in which you have one element of a complex system which uh, moves along exponential growth lines or trends, and yet that does not translate to the behavior of the whole system in general. Right. Well, can I? Can, let's pivot this conversation a little bit. Away, sure. Because I think um, so. Transportation, right? This is certainly a goal we could work on. Right. We could work on improving our planes, improving our cars. Right. But what is the goal that you think we should be working on? Right. If if we if we accept that, okay, maybe this stuff isn't you know completely determined by the technology. Maybe you know this stuff is not going to happen without the right set of cultural priorities. Is that what we should want? Should we still want faster planes and cars? Or is there something else that we should be putting our money and our research into? Right. How valuable is moving human bodies around at the end of the day, right? And, and if of there's, course, yeah. And what are some of the other goals that, that I'll, I'll put it to you, that you think are worthwhile that we should be spending more money on that maybe we're not? Well, to me, it's, it, it may sound a little bit esoteric perhaps, but to me, the, the major goals have not changed, or at least ought to have not changed since the, the beginning of humanity, and that is to, to lead the good life, as Socrates put it, and to diminish you know, suffering and death of, of our fellow humans all over the planet. That, to me, should be or ought to be the goal. Now, it may not be necessarily always the goal, unfortunately, but as far as I'm concerned personally, that's a good goal. That's my goal. To, to sort of contribute to the betterment of our kind, our intelligent race in one way or another, even if it's in a small, minor way. And while I'm doing that, hopefully to follow my passion and to do something that I love doing and, and, and have fun and discover both about you know, us as a species, but also me as an individual and as a thinking being. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, what it calls to mind is uh, somebody that we've interviewed here, and I suspect he's probably been on your podcast oh, oh, yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, Nicola um, did, did a great interview with him as well. Uh, which is uh, David Pierce and his sure. uh, his goal of basically eliminating suffering for, yeah. for thinking beings. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, I like David personally very much. As far as the hedonistic imperative is, is concerned, and, and his kind of plan of, of engineering suffering out of everything on our planet and everyone and everything going vegan basically that to me is a little bit it's it's kind of like the brave new world it it, it puts a lot of fear in me uh, because it imparts his own kind of ethics into things and species that we can't even begin to comprehend perhaps uh, and and designs the whole planet and the whole system for towards the goal in the end that he deems to be the best. I'm not sure if that's not the path to slavery. Right. Well, and even if you don't take it quite as far as he does, uh, I, I'm not sure I'm totally on board with uh, engineering out predator-prey relationships either. But uh, just the kind of first conclusion of, of his work, which is eliminating suffering in the human mind, uh, at least among those who are willingly uh, doing so. What do you think about that idea? I mean, what what I think is interesting about that is that that's a kind of singularity too, isn't it? It's like yeah. um, a way that technology fundamentally changes what it means to be human and therefore uh, makes it... A world it, without like unhappy states of mind would be such a different world. Or even just without 
vo- involuntary unhappiness. Sure. Even if you just assume for a moment that nobody's forced into this and that you uh, you take the that, happy pill when you want, that still is like I think a radically different world, is it not? Yes, but to, I agree. But to me, that's the crucial that's the crucial element that it's got to be voluntary. I agree so, with that. So you have to have the option. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. But I also think most people, including myself, would choose, given the option, the happiness, which then leads to a very similar world where you can do kind of the same thought experiment of, you know, it, it is sort of Brave New World-like. Similar, uh, but not identical, because progress happens on the margins. And as long as we allow margins to be different than the core, then we allow the possibility of diversity and of change happening and of progress happening. And... The, the worst way or the best way to lock up a society is if you make everything and everyone identical. And that's, in effect, the, the end result of what he proposes. Well, I definitely agree with what you just said. I think, I think it's possible to imagine a world in which there's both very low amounts of suffering and high diversity. I'm not no, but sure I think that's that, a great point about diversity, though. I think yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I yeah. just want to say I completely agree with that. I think, yeah, absolutely. Diversity is a major value uh, for, for progress and a bulwark against all kinds of bad that's things happening. That's our greatest strength. That's yeah. all progress. Everything comes because from the point that we don't have the same point of view. Right. That you guys see things differently than I do. That's everything good and bad. Well, not even sure if it's if it's the bad, but for sure everything good comes from that. That that we're different and much of the bad probably. Yeah, I think definitely a lot of our resilience and and progress comes from that diversity, and I would want to maintain that. Like I said, I'm just not sure that simply giving people the choice to eliminate their suffering would actually reduce the diversity. It might uh, create more diversity by creating more tolerance, giving people fewer reasons to be upset with one another for the various ways they're different. Within a realm, yes, but my point was that there will be people who will choose not to do that. Sure. Or, or to have a better control, and, and I think that's valuable. Mm-hmm. I think that's very valuable because, and it's also another reason why I believe that, you know, as it's been said, society should be judged with respect to how it treats its most vulnerable and marginalized members of, uh, of society. Uh, and that's why I think we should allow those free spaces for, let's say, technologically Amish people to exist and peacefully coexist with us. Um, in other words, if I, I'm, I love technology and, and it's a big part of my life, but I absolutely respect the fact that there will be people who would make a different choice and who would decide, as they have decided here in Ontario where I live, we have Mennonite and other communities uh, a little bit north from me, uh, who live basically with the horse and buggy technology and, and that's kind of their choice. And I respect that. I wouldn't make that choice for myself. But I respect that. And the fact that we are able to peacefully coexist is a very good sign of how developed and sophisticated my society is. Uh, and I'm very proud of that. And I think that the future must have space for those communities to form and co- coexist peacefully. I completely agree with that. And it sounds more or less like the, the transhumanist principle of morphological freedom Exactly. Uh, this yeah. idea that people should should be able to uh, have access to self determination over themselves, and and mm-hmm. uh, I, I can absolutely be behind that. Uh, we're going to wrap up soonish, and and one of the things I want to ask you about before we do is more about how you perceive the community around these topics. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and and again, it's it's hard to find the right term. I I sometimes say futurism. I sometimes say you know use the word singularity. Other times I use transhumanism to just des- yeah. to describe this sort of set of things that we've talked about today. Right. Uh, which is actually pretty. Well, whatever broad. you call it, there's a group of people who are out there talking about these topics of you know technological progress and AI and the coming uh, world. And I, I'm curious, like in the five years or so that you've been been doing this. Have you seen any shifts in terms of uh, the size of the community or even in terms of some of these topics becoming more mainstream? It sort of anecdotally feels like that to me. But since you've been doing this longer, I'm, I'm curious what your impression is. Yeah, definitely there's a trend to popularization and, and, and growth, uh, both in the transhumanist and in the singularitarian community. Now, I wish the trend was faster, perhaps. <laughs> because that's what I've been doing. But but again, I, I am doing my best and what will happen will happen. You know, because I'm partial and directly involved in this process, to me, while recognizing the growth and the progress we've made, it it probably is always going to seem insufficient and too slow. But it's undeniable. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the fact that we're seeing a number of m- movies, not only on, you know, the, the big screen, but also on TV and everywhere on the topics of transhumanism, the singularity, artificial intelligence, life extension, nanotechnology, genetics, you know, artificial intelligence, all those things coming together is, is just one of the many signs that more and more people are becoming aware and engaged into that whole process and that whole discussion. And I don't know if you would agree with me, but I think even those representations become better and better. I mean, 30 years ago, we had the Terminator. Now we have things like her and Ex Machina. And I think we're definitely making progress there. Yeah, our last guest was a a film professor from USC, uh, Steve Anderson, and he has a whole kind of project on all the terrible ways that technology was depicted in, in older Hollywood films. And we, had, we were able to discuss with him how, how much better things have gotten recently. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did reviews here on this podcast of both her and Ex Machina and found them to be, you know, pretty good at the end of the day. Not that they didn't have any flaws, but, sure. but, but pretty good in their depictions of technology. So, yeah, um, I want to see what you think, um, since you're really an expert in this community and in what, you know, what people are talking about, what do you see the future of the community being? Like, do you think uh, there's likelihood of uh, a transhumanist or singularitarian uh, political party uh, emerging, or do you think there's well, there is a transhumanist or, or party. political, political movement? I suppose, uh, yeah. I mean, one that has more legs, maybe uh, yeah. one that one that could say win an actual election. You know, uh, here in the United States, where we have first past the post elections, or like, uh, uh, you know, do you see um, this becoming subsumed? Um, into traditional political debates, you know. I mean, I think already there's kind of a a left and a right version of of these things. Uh-huh. Uh, we talked with James Hughes about that a little bit. But where do you see this going in the future? Do you think this becomes just a background part of everyone's life? Do you think it continues to be like a growing niche like it is now? What, what's your prediction? Well, definitely I see the growth continuing. What would be the, the most likely path? Again, I, I, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, we, we are seeing both, uh, I think, trends that you've mentioned. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, we have Zoltan Istvan, 
uh, and the Transhumanist Party, who is uh, putting putting forward uh, a presidential uh, candidacy for the upcoming election. Then we have um, uh, the United Kingdom, where uh, you have P plus, uh, and 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 people are registering uh, an official Transhumanist Party, and at the same time, both in Canada and in in the U.S. and the United Kingdom and many other places. Uh, acting politicians uh, or or people who are associated with the mainstream political parties and movements have been becoming more aware and more engaged with the sort of the transhumanist discourse, the transhumanist issues. So I don't know which one will come on top. I, I think it's, again, going to be probably a mixture of both and, and something else that we can't see right now uh, that's going to create the, the final outcome in, in one way or another. But I, I definitely see a continuation of that trend and, and hopefully acceleration of it at a much faster pace than it is going right now. Well, I certainly hope so, because I think that these topics are, are important for people to be thinking about. So, And anything that broadens them to a wider audience is, is a good thing. And I think you're doing a, your part very well in, in terms of that. I mean, I, your podcast and, and blog have been a tremendous resource for me personally and for other people out there I know. So... I want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this has been uh, a wonderful conversation. I hope you had fun as well. Definitely. We're going to, you know, of course, link to many of the things we talked about, including your podcast. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we go? Okay. So one of the things that I've learned is that technology is a mirror, in my opinion, and, and we don't see things as they are, but we see things as we are. And in other words, Technology reflects who we are. And so if we want to have better technology, we have to be better people and better creators and have a better direction towards the point that we're looking at so that we can create the, the best possible outcomes. Because again, it is a mirror and you get out what you put into it. So if you focus on destruction and, and war and, and ridiculous, simplistic, international, interracial, interreligious competition, it can be very destructive. But if we focus on the best in us, we should and can reflect those features in our technology, and that's inevitably going to push us forward. So in other words, the choices within us and we have to be cognizant and, and aware of that choice and, and make it and implement it. And I think that's definitely going to help us to get to a better future and better us in the process. I think those are some good words to end on. Thanks again. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on the podcast sometime. Yes. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Nicola. Sure thing, guys. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to our interview with Nicola Danilov. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we uh, enjoyed doing it. And of course, you should check out his website, The Singularity Weblog, and podcast, The Singularity One-on-One -on -one Podcast. Uh, it's really the single best resource for uh, interviews of uh, people uh, talking about this topic. So uh, definitely check that out. Also, I, I want to mention something that, that we have to plug that I've been remiss in not mentioning so far, which is that... Uh, we now have an iOS app. This That's comes right. to us courtesy of 
another friend in the podcast world. Well, yeah, there's a new company called Podcast Pop, which is a venture started by our, our good friends over at the Smart Drug Smarts podcast. Our right. listeners may remember Jesse Lawler, who we had on our show about brain enhancement. Right. And uh, Apparently that enhancement's working because he's made this app. Yes, he's managed to create this app. With I don't know help. how he finds the time. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, you know, he's starting a company here that's, that's going to be trying to, you know, provide uh, apps uh, at a reasonable price to people doing podcasts like ourselves. Uh, but we're beta testing this app, so we got ours for free, and it's live right now at the App Store. Right. So, so if you're on an iOS device, check this out. Go to the old App Store, and is it just under Review the Future, John? Uh, yes. Yeah, so just search for Review the Future, and you can find, uh, find that app. It's pretty cool. Also, uh, we're still hard at work on our graphic novel. That's right. Uh, and for listeners who haven't heard about this yet, uh, we are making a comic book right. called Let Go. It's going to be set in the near future, and it's going to deal with all kinds of futurist topics like technological unemployment, like privacy, like virtual reality, and we're really excited about it. And if you go to letgocomic.com, you can see a bunch of the artwork from the early pages. You can learn more about the story. And if you've already visited that URL, you might want to check it out again, because as of this episode going up, there's a lot of new material up there for you to look at. And once you're there, you can enter your email address. And we're not going to spam you or anything, but we'll just let you know when the Kickstarter goes live, which is going to happen in about two weeks, we're going to start uh, raising a little bit of money just to pay for our really fantastic artist. This is a, a woman named Cecilia uh, in Italy who's been working with us on this project. And we're really, really excited about where this is going. It's a chance for us to take some of these ideas that we've talked about on the podcast and funnel them towards a finished story that's about characters and relationships but against the background of this ever-changing technology that we always discuss on the podcast here. And we think our listeners will really like it. So check out letgocomic.com for more information about that. Uh, so I think that's it for plugs. Um, we don't have any mail this week, do we? No, I want, I want to start a new feature of the right. podcast where we do essentially a postscript where we can talk about mail, but also you know other things that come to mind. We can do small mini-reviews, things of that nature. So send us those letters and comments. Uh, and while you're at it, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher if you use those platforms because uh, it really helps us get, uh, get the word out. Absolutely. And, and yes, I think starting uh, next episode, in addition to our, our main segment about the topic, we'll, we'll be adding some little extra discussion to the end. So if you can feed into that by, by giving us comments, feel free to tweet at us as, as well. That's, if that's right. your preferred manner at of communication. RTF underscore podcast is our uh, Twitter handle. Uh, tell us what you think and, uh, and what you'd like us to talk about, uh, either for a whole show topic or just like a little question you want us to answer and we'll, we'll try to get to it. Absolutely. As always, thanks for listening. Yes, thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.